0: Dr. Josh Macauer is the Boston Scientific Applied Bioengineering Professor of Medicine and of Bioengineering at the Stanford University Schools of Medicine and Engineering, and is the Director and Co-Founder of the Stanford Byers Center for Biodesign and Founder of Stanford's Biodesign Policy Program. Dr. Mackauer also serves as a special partner on New Enterprise Associates healthcare team, supporting their med tech and health tech practice. Lastly, he is the founder and executive chairman of ExplorerMed, a medical device incubator that has created 10 companies over the past 20 years. This is Dr. Todd Brinton, chief scientific officer at Edwards Life Sciences. I am pleased to introduce this episode, the life cycle of innovation, which is part of the Healthcare Innovation Series presented by Edwards Life Sciences. Now, let's listen in as my good friend and colleague, Josh Macauer, shares some of his extraordinary insights into the process of medical innovation and leadership.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Gary Visby Show. Nathan Bayes here, obviously not Gary, but, uh, but pleased today to be interviewing Josh Macauer. Josh is a professor of medicine and bioengineering at Stanford. He's also director of the BioDesign Center at Stanford, which is just a fascinating organization and one that we will dive into today on the Gary Bisbee show. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining us today, and I'm very much happy to have you
2: here. Absolutely, it's uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and my my condolences to Gary's family and and to everyone who knew him well. Yeah. No, thanks so much, Josh. It was a
1: very impactful, meaningful life that Gary touched so many of us. So we're happy to be doing this interview and carrying on what you built here at Think Media. Josh, look, let's jump right into your background. You've had a, an illustrious career, which we'll hope you cover it in part. We can't cover it all in the
2: time allotted, it, but we'll cover some of it. But tell us a little bit about how it all started. Sure. I grew up on the East Coast. I was a creative kid. i liked music and photography and building things. I had a real fascination with the intricacies of the human body. And I was really inspired by a television program back in the day called The Bionic Man. And that the idea of creating a superhero with technology, making people, curing people, making them be able to walk or see or be strong or stuff like that was really a an inspiration for me as a kid. And I even... You know, sort of sketched in a notebook at the age of, I don't know, five or seven and like my first invention notebook back then. So it was a calling, I think. <laughs> yeah. So when
1: did you decide that medicine was a career path? When did medical school come into the picture? As I
2: was finishing engineering school at MIT, I wanted to experience what I wanted to understand the human body. I wanted to understand disease. I could have pursued a path, a PhD path, but I think the idea of learning how to be a physician and understanding it from the physician's perspective and getting a holistic understanding of the entire body system was sort of what drew me to medicine. And at that time, I thought that maybe I could be a practicing physician and an inventor and do both. And so I entered medical school. A classic in medical school NYU to really learn it the way learn it the way doctors learn it and that was my intent I wanted to go through the full training just to understand um, you know the treatment of patients from the eyes of a doctor yeah that makes sense and what about business school so you were engineering,
1: medical school, and then you went to business school. So you got the trifecta from a degree perspective. Uh, When did the interesting kind of business come in? in Yeah,
2: that came later. After I graduated from medical school, I went into the business world. I was brought in, I was hired at Pfizer and as a technology analyst in the business development department, working on a variety of things. This group was also responsible for overseeing all the R&D projects for all of Pfizer, which had a $2 $2 billion medical advice business at the time. So I was in the medical technology side that Pfizer used to have. And a few years into that, I realized that I was being viewed as the technical person, or the medical person, and all the business stuff was happening in another room. And I really wanted to be in the room where it was happening and didn't seem like I had the, the understanding of the language or what was how people were framing why they were making certain decisions. It was all accounting and, and finance, and I felt like I really needed to understand that. So I lobbied to have Pfizer pay for my, for my business education, and I went to the executive program in Columbia. And that was a great experience. And really, I'm so glad I did it and really gave me that perspective that I needed to operate them at, at a business level. So Pfizer was your
1: first job after medical school. How long were you in that job? And when did your kind of the more entrepreneurial interests start to emerge?
2: I was there for about six years. And during that time, I had an opportunity, an experience that really shaped my entire career to this day, honestly, which was that Hank McKinnell, who was the CFO at the time, he later became the president of Pfizer. But he's the guy that picked my resume out of a stack, asked me to do a special project. And the project was focused on trying to understand why these little businesses in the med tech world that they would buy would be so in it before they would be bought, and then after they were bought, everything was really incremental. And what were the reasons why? And and that was a like a side project, not part of my everyday job, but it was the thing that really shaped everything I did next. Because what I saw there was that as an independent innovator, these founders were going after solving a problem without a particular technology in mind, and they would find the best technology to solve it, and they'd really just create a whole field, a whole new product category by doing that. Yet, once they were an established company and they were, let's say, a balloon and they were purchased by Pfizer, they were just looking for new ways of improving the balloon or using the balloon. They really weren't thinking about how do we get the next big advance for our customer, that could be a technology that we don't even have today. And so I came back and showed that to him and said, I think the key difference here is we just need a different process, one that starts on needs, and, but starts with the strategy of where you want to be, but starts with those customers and, and is agnostic to technology and solves a problem with the best technology and said, okay, that sounds logical, but why don't you prove it? And so he gave me the resources to set up a little incubator inside of Pfizer. And over those years that I worked on that incubator, we developed, we broke the process down because the whole idea was that we needed to teach it to the rest of the R&D organization. So I segmented it out into steps and we took a lot of things from others that were working on innovation processes and adapted them and created an innovation process that was pretty novel. And that was the origins of the biodesign process, honestly, that, that is the process that I've used as a in, an inventor myself, as well as what we've taught to thousands of people at this point.
1: <laughs> what are some of the things you can do in addition to what you just shared, but thinking about it from the governance leader and leadership perspective, which was a focus of Gary's show here, how should management teams and boards be thinking about
2: that? That really is something that I, obviously some people have it innately. I don't think I do. I've had to learn it and and it's super important. And if you want to have an innovative organization, you really need to have one that's really accepting of wild ideas. Give them a little bit of space in the room and in the air to, to be considered. Consider the disruptive ideas, the frustrating ideas that you don't, necessarily want to listen to, but you really should, and create an atmosphere that allows for that disruption. Um, At the same time, once you've committed to something, setting a very high bar for tweaks and add-ons, because you could be in R&D forever, so you have to be able to switch modes. We go from this mode of anything's possible, how do we solve this problem, let's throw everything against the wall, yet we're matching them to this criteria set, and when we find one that matches. And we think, wow, this could actually be a reasonable solution. The next thing we do is after we fully formed it, then our goal is why should this survive? How do we kill this as soon as possible? What's the killer thing that's going to tell us this is the wrong way to go? We try to do that as soon as possible. We're shifting between those types of modes and similar in the mode of let's go solve something, let's come up with a disruptive idea. Once we lock in and we can't kill it, then it's we're on this thing, stay the court. In studying a little bit
1: about your background, completely amazing, 300-plus patents, just talk a little bit about that the inventor, right, and how that meshed throughout your career with the different you know, yeah. with Pfizer, the first shot, the incubator, yeah. what you've done. How do you, how do
2: you think about invention? You you yeah. Know, you know, where do you get your ideas from? I get my ideas by following the process. And people are like, hey, you got another idea for your next thing? I'm like, no, I have no idea what's next. I'm, I'm very disciplined. And if you look at my patents, I would say 98% of them are attached to projects that we actually did, that we actually attempted to or actually did bring to market. That means we've given a lot of stuff away. If I have an idea and I'm not going to pursue it, I'm not going to patent it. Even if it could be successful in someone else's hands, I figure that might prevent someone from actually doing it. So I don't want to stop innovation. I don't want to block others. I just want to do something good. So, I'm going to focus my efforts on the things I'm actually going to do and try to protect those like all get out. <laughs> but but I'm not going to prevent other inventors. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. You
1: know, this is obviously a healthcare show and our conversation will be focused on healthcare, but feels like a good time to ask you about, is it Corbin? Is that how you... Oh, yeah. Which is a company slash invention that you had, which is it's not healthcare related. It's Although Scott, I'm sure we, here. There we go. I'm sure many guests on the, the Gary or many guests and listeners on the Gary Bisbee show are, are wine connoisseurs and wine drinkers. Yeah. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about, about that invention and that company.
2: Yeah, sure. So, this one I'm co founder of. My so at Pfizer, I brought in hired a great guy named Greg Lambrecht, who's an incredibly creative guy. And uh, using the biodesign process, Greg, by the need of needing to have, if you want a glass out of a bottle, there's really no way to do it without destroying all the wine in the bottle the the using that neat spec neat statement as we would call it in a formal process of biodesign created one of the criteria you have to be able to take out as much as you want and it has to not in any way impact the wine in the bottle and realize that the only way to do that is to never open the bottle but to exchange the wine out of the bottle at the same time as passing in an inert gas And so what it does is it experimented with a number of different gases and wound up with argon, which is used in food packaging. It's completely inert. And uh, what's cool is you could take a glass out of this bottle and glass, the wine in the glass, of course, will be exposed to air and it'll start to go through its maturation process, which is part of the good thing about it. But the wine in the bottle is completely inert and you literally can leave it for years. And have one glass out of a bottle every for five years or more. It's a half a glass ten years, and the wine continues to evolve normally, and it's amazing. It's just an amazing technology. and it's it's really a it's a global brand now, and I'm still on the board, and it's been fun. Let's talk a little bit about the biodesign process and
1: the the Byers Center for Biodesign at Stanford, yeah. where you're the director. So you were an initial kind of founder of the, right. of the Center twenty plus years ago. And then recently, you come back to to lead the center as director. Maybe share with the audience what is the buyer center for Biodesign? Yeah. What kind of work do you do? Absolutely. That into the bio design process.
2: Yeah. Look, our mission is to train the next generation of innovators. What we've done is, like I said, we're ta- we've broken out the steps of it, of innovation so that it's not as daunting and it can be approached by anyone. And we believe that it can innovation is something you can teach people. You can learn it, you can get good at it, you can practice it, and you can really build a career around it. And more formally, I mean, we actually now, I now see the potential of the biodesign process being an incredibly useful tool for economies that are looking for how do they grow and also for addressing global health equity. But the the biodesign center here is really focused on that. We want to train people. We train undergraduates, graduates, fellows. We actually train faculty here on this so that they can find the right places to apply their research ideas. And clinical faculty, the right way to solve the problems that their patients are having, we train global faculty. We have several here right now from across the world, faculty from other institutions who are training on how to teach it. And so they will go back to their organizations. And at this moment, there are 80 uh, plus programs across the world, literally, in almost every, on every continent, using biodesign, uh, teaching students biodesign design, and using our textbook. And and our students themselves, while they're training, have invented and created over fifty six companies, which have touched the lives of oh, almost eight million people so far with their products. And that's just while they're training. There's double that amount of companies that they created after the program. I'm very thankful at the support of several organizations like Edwards and others to to set this uh, to set this up. but the goal is really to identify all the roadblocks to innovation and inform policymakers through research that brings those issues to light but also train the next generation of policymakers as well that will focus
1: on innovation when we're talking about innovations that could potentially extend life improve life, that's a long time to to go from the creation and the discovery to the actual widespread implementation. So any type of improvement of that around speed while protecting from a safety perspective, of course, is critical. What are just a couple of lessons learned from everything that's crossed yeah. you, your desk as, <laughs> as a leader, as a board member? Any words of advice to fellow board members or aspiring entrepreneurs of how they should think about building businesses and then also the governance structure around early stage and growth stage companies?
2: Lots of lessons learned. I'm still learning them. I keep on thinking, when am I going to get this down? Right. <laughs> Why am I still <laughs> learning now? But, but yeah, some things that are central themes are people are everything people are a company. The idea is important, but it's not the most important thing. Having good people, good culture, that's everything. If you got that, you got some good people with you, you can accomplish almost anything. Next one is perseverance. There are a million ways to fail. And failure is just always just licking at your heels. It's just always there. And sometimes early on, failure is good. If you can, before you've brought all the investors on board. And before you've made all sorts of commitments, if you can kill something early, that's great. And then you save yourself so much hassle. But once you're on the journey, it's about landing the plane. You can't, pilots can't go, all right, we're bailing out. Hey, see you all, passengers, so we'll see you. Maybe, good luck flying and landing the plane. I think you have to land the plane. And, and I think that takes tremendous perseverance, whether it's financing challenges or building the right team Overcoming regulatory reimbursement, there's just technical, even clinical challenges. It's just so hard, but you have to see your way through. And I think the guiding light through all that is focusing on what's best for the patient. Let me ask you this question, maybe not a fair one, but I'll ask it anyway. Which is
1: of everything that's going on in, let's call it, I would call it kind of medical innovation broccoli. You've got yeah, gene therapies and the advancement that's going on there, just tremendous. You've got a lot of really interesting kind of step function advancements around cardiac and what's going on in the cardiology heart. What are you most excited about if you just step back and look at the entire ecosystem?
2: Yeah, I love breaking new ground, and I love when my when our fellows and students break new ground. That that is the biggest, most exciting moments of my life to do something that's never been done before see something that no one's ever seen before. At this stage in the evolution of humans and technology, to be on the edge and do something, oh my God, this actually works. And no one believed it or no one saw it or, and to be in the room where that happens, it's just that I've, I, that's why I'm still creating companies and working on new technologies myself, as well as others to do it, but it's the best. You've certainly been on the edge for your entire career and you've
1: created a lot of the future Josh, thank you for uh, for joining us on the Gary Bisbee Show. So I
2: appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation.